Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. And we're on. Don Samuels, thanks so much for being here. Great to be here. Yeah, so you came across um, my radar after one of my guests introduced us, and you have a tremendous background working with the inner city, working in Minneapolis on both the school board and the city board, and just a ton of other projects. So I was super excited to speak with you, especially with the, the current climate of things, somebody who's taking action in that area and is in, engaged. Before we got on the air, you were telling me a little bit about your story. So let's start there. Tell me about your story. Take me back to the beginning. Let's start there. Yeah, yeah I'm from Jamaica. I'm the son of a Pentecostal preacher and seamstress and uh, kind of a village seamstress. And um, we're a low-income family. And, um, but I, I got a scholarship to get a good education as um, Jamaica had a very harsh kind of elimination Brown that you, in, right in puberty, you would take a big test to see what your future was going to be. And I passed the test and I got to get into that kind of professional stream, and which means going to high school for free, which is what that test was about. <clears throat> so I got a, a, a very good education um, up, up to the graduation from high school. In the meantime, I, I had um, observed poverty around me. We lived in a low-income community, and the contrast between the people who were doing well that I saw at school, <laughs> where most of the wealthy people were, and the people I lived among were that didn't make it into the high school because the test was so skewed towards class and preparation for the test, which rich people and wealth and middle-class people were able to take. So that just the inequity of that kind of sat on my chest for all of my developmental years, walking back and forth to school every day, through the great neighborhood to the school, back to the great neighborhood, back through the poor neighborhood, back to my house. You know, I did that from age 10 to age 18. So, you know, that was a, a lesson, a, a, a school uh, all, all in its own, with a lot of contemplation on that mile and a half or two mile walk. And, um, so um, I, I, I was observing also the phenomenon of, phenomena of what was happening in America with, uh, with low-income African-Americans and the disadvantage of African-Americans and trying to understand it because we were um, we, in our little church. Well, it wasn't a little church, but in our church, um, there were a lot of maids and other um, low-skilled workers that were our members and my dad in my dad's church and people were leaving constantly to go to England first and then to America for a better life and to get an education hopefully and so um, I just couldn't understand how it was that African Americans were having such an inferior life when we were leaving our lives for a better life and I remember reading one Ge National Geographic where they were talking about some 13-year-old kid who couldn't read. It was a Harlem boy. And, um, and I saw the picture and he, was, he looked well-fed. Now, in Jamaica, you're poor, you look poor, you don't look well-fed, okay? And um, I was skinny, all of my friends were skinny. And, <laughs> and here was this beefy-looking kid who couldn't read. And I just, you know, putting all that together, I just couldn't understand it. And, um, and so when Martin Luther King kind of rose it to our consciousness and started to expose internationally the disparities that existed and the mean-spiritedness of the system and the apathy and um, avoidance of individuals, including religious leaders and so on, I just it began to come clear to me. And I began to think about my own denomination and my own religious people who didn't see any connection between their decision-making and, and, and the inequities that existed. So I was pulled towards Martin Luther King, a preacher like my dad, 
was concerned about social equity and about transforming their country when we were preoccupied with going to heaven and getting out of Dodge. You know, that was our kind of theological posture. And so I, I was gravitated towards him from that time. So when I came here at age 20 to go to college, I brought that dream and hunger with me to get to know the Martin Luther King philosophy, the civil rights movement, to be part of it, actually. So when I graduated from college after you know working uh, very, very hard because I had to foreign students, no loans, no grants, and no coming with no money, that means I had to work two, three jobs to make it through college in real time. And, and so that was very tedious. I didn't have a chance to look up until I graduated from college. But my intent was to go back to Jamaica and to live in Trenchtown, which is, you might not know, is where Bob Marley comes from. And, um, gotcha. and, and all, I was already getting pushback from my Jamaican friends who I talked to about it in New York. And um, like, why would you want to do that? You can't do that. That's dangerous. Your mom would be freaked out, you know, that kind of a thing. And so um, eventually I got married um, right at, in college and decided to stay in the U.S. And uh, so I kept that dream. I wanted to live in a in low-income community. So from the time I graduated from college, except for maybe a couple of years, I always live in the low-income community in any city I lived in. I lived in six cities. So, um, so that it kind of brings you to what kind of made me, made my destiny and changed my life and determined so much about what uh, has happened to me. And um, I, I have come to believe, in fact, that that decision was the best decision I could have made, that it was the most consistent decision I could have made with my own faith and with um, the life uh, and direction that Martin Luther King was taking in his life as he just before he died, he started living in lower income communities and in the way that Jesus lived. And, I, and I'm convinced now that um, seeing the patterns, uh, beginning to understand the patterns of American uh, prejudice and American values, uh, that the connection between the unwillingness to do that and the conditions that exist the gaps that exist in America. So um, let me give you a, a brief summary of what happens in this happened in this community, which happened all over the world, all over the country, rather. In our community, um, I live a, a block and a half from West Broadway, which is a county uh, throughway going through the low-income community here. It was not always a low-income community. It was, in fact, I live in what was a middle, solid middle-class community with nice homes built in woodwork and all of that. And, um, but this side of Broadway, north of Broadway, was where Europeans lived. South of Broadway was where Jews and then Blacks lived. Blacks meaning further north, south even. And um, Broadway was the commercial corridor for the, for the white community and Plymouth Avenue, which is blocks south, was a commercial corridor for the Jewish community where blacks also shopped and had a couple stores. If you came north of Broadway to spend time or to try to live, you would get in trouble with the law. It was the law. And this was in my lifetime. You know, I was at that time 18. So, so, um, I just hadn't arrived in Minnesota. I spent time on the East Coast. But when I was 18, that's what the world was. If you lived north of Broadway, you could be killed. In fact, you would have to be killed because there were no black people here. And the only way you can enforce that and keep somebody from a better home, a better life, is you know very complicated covenants, housing covenants, and then ultimately somebody insists you'd have to get rid of them. And you can see how that played out in the South to say, no, you can't walk on the sidewalk when a white person is coming. You can't whistle at a white woman. You can't, you will be lynched. You'll be killed. 
that these these kind of passive things that we had in place and some still exist today seem so benign because people know their place and they keep their places but then once somebody crosses the line you see all kind of venom coming out and so that was it sounds like just a housing covenant and no bites here and there no it was like you will be killed okay and so um, let's make that pretty clear. Now, fair housing laws was passed in 1968 through the efforts of the civil rights movement and Dr. King and all of his um, uh, cohort. That means that blacks could now live anywhere by law and you couldn't stop them. So uh, very soon thereafter, a couple of blacks started to move north of Broadway and um, uh, and, and by the way, the riots happened also in 67, 68 here. This was a place in Minneapolis where the riots happened. So, uh, and the riots took out the Jewish business community because the anger of the black community was taken out basically on the Jewish business community. And um, the Jews kind of left in large numbers and moved to St. Louis Park, which people called St. Jewish Park back then because it was the only uh, suburb without covenants against Jews. So they began to move there very early. And after the riots, there was a kind of mass exodus to St. Louis Park. And so um, a lot of those houses that emptied out then were bought up by, um, by yuppies because the, the, the housing market crashed um, because of that exodus. And uh, houses could be bought for a, a dime. You know, sweat equity, buy it for a dollar, fix it up, the government will let you take it over kind of thing. Similarly, north of Broadway, where blacks started to move, they, the, the whites started to flee uh, just because of the refusal to be in proximity. Now, now that sounds again like, oh, well, you know, movement of people, location, location, location. No, this is, we will not live next to you because you are black. You're nasty, we don't want you here. And before we risk one of our family members getting in a relationship with one of you all, we will move away from you. We consider you disgusting. It sounds like in you know, a white flight, that's a nice word, white flight. No, I'm telling you what it means, right? So people fled out of here and they say, sociologists say once the integration gets to 15%, then you see massive fl white flight. That's what happened. So when I moved into, uh, in, in the 1990 census, I moved into Minneapolis in 1996, but in the 1990 census, this neighborhood was 65% white, 25% black, and the rest other. In the 2000 census, it was 65% black, 25% white. And so that's when that big flip finally happened in 10 years. Now, over all of that, you know, the riot, the flight of the Jews from North Minneapolis to St. Louis Park, the, the, the failure of, uh, of the Jewish corridor, commercial corridor to recover became basically a residential corridor. And then the the turning of the West Broadway European Shopping Center into Blight Corridor outside of downtown Minneapolis. It was the busiest, um, the busiest um, commercial corridor and it had a streetcar. You could buy anything you want on West Broadway. It became, in fact, the, the, the lagging commercial corridor in the entire city of Minneapolis with very marginal businesses and, uh, and the North Minneapolis as a whole, meaning south of Broadway, north of Broadway, all became in one package, concentration of poverty, absence of white, white middle class, and then finally the black middle class fled in significant numbers except in a few small pockets. And uh, so we end up with what we have, concentration of poverty. And people now, the solution has been to um, you know, efforts at mentoring, efforts at pouring in dollars, uh, federal money coming to the schools for free and reduced lunch, and for um, 
for uh, to help kids who are lagging in their in, in their education, um, uh, special ed dollars, Title I dollars, all of that um, governmental dollars, and then the cultural effort through big brothers, big sisters, and all of that energy. The county spends a um, couple hundred million dollars a year in this community. Um, it, both supporting families and in incarcerating young people from here. In fact, Hennepin County uh, had uh, a quarter of its black men um, arrested and booked each year. Hello. All right, so money's being poured in out here into lives to incarcerate, to punish, to sustain, to support. And, and all this energy is being poured in here, you know, ironically, a lot of it goes into the pockets of the white middle class. The police force is 80% white. The teachers are 85% white. Social workers, similarly. So a lot of the money that is put here, it goes in the pockets of white people to, to middle class income to serve poor black people who never become middle class. And, uh, so the thing to examine though is what was it like here before when people were all white? Well, they had enclaves of denominations. So you had Lutheran, um, uh, Scandinavian Lutherans living here. You had, um, you had Polish Catholics living here and they were all centered around their church. People would live around their church, the parish church system. And uh, I live on Baptist Hill. This was a Swedish Baptist community. And it was so intensely Swedish and Baptist that it was called Baptist Hill, this little hill we live on here. And uh, so that's how it was. And on Sunday mornings, when you went to the Swedish Baptist church, there would be a Swedish janitor and a Swedish doctor and a Swedish lawyer. They were all there, rich and poor together. Similarly, in the Catholic Polish church, they were all there. And so they were mentors. They just didn't have to sign up for any big brothers or big sisters or big cousins. They, you just go to that church and you got your mentors. And, and, um, and if somebody knew about a job, they'd tell somebody or they would hire somebody. And, uh, and if somebody had a basketball hoop on their garage, the kid without one could come over and play with the son that did. That's how it was. But when black people came in, it's like, nope, we're not doing that. And, and so then what happened is white people left and re-coagulated uh, around class. The, this, the, the uh, balkanization around ethnicities in the white community began to break down under the movement of the white European uh, community into this whiteness that America became. You're no longer Polish, you're white. No longer Irish. Well, for a while there, Irish weren't even white. Gradually, all the European groups kind of became accepted into this whiteness. And so then the movement out of these inner city enclaves was a movement into suburbanite class coagulations or class balkanizations. And so uh, now you have middle class communities and lower class communities rather than Polish communities with all the classes in it or Irish communities with all the classes in it. And that, 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 uh, that prejudicial initiation of that movement created what we have today, which is a de facto, con uh, 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 a de facto um, concentration of poverty. That is not because poor people moved into each other's spaces and wanted to live together. It, it's because middle-class people moved out of those communities and the housing prices crashed 
and they were bought up by investors. And this is a little too early for you, but back in this late 70s and 80s, late night TV, cheap advertising, prices went down. It was all about selling opportunities for people to buy up cheap houses and rent them out for a lot of money. And it was a whole kind of real estate uh, uh, phenomenon that happened. It was buy a house, no money down. And there were programs to teach you how to do this. How could you buy a house for no, little or no money down? Well, it was because of this white flight and this middle class black flight that happened. And then, and these incredible houses that had great bones were now available for $10,000. And you could buy it for little and nothing and actually rent it out for twice their monthly mortgage payment to poor people who are in Section 8 and public housing support. So it was a whole thing. And that was all done because of prejudice and racism. And people don't talk about it that way. You won't hear this anywhere. <laughs> I haven't heard it. I had to figure it out. And then start here reading about it in little drips and but it's not analyzed in that way. And so I I if by pure happenstance, the the pledge I made in college to always live in a low income community was actually the reversal of the brain drain that was taking place that was damaging American cities and damning American city dwellers to lifetimes of low income disassociation from middle class, disconnection from the hope and dreams of the American dream, and a predisposition and an expectation for a shortened life of poverty and no progress. And uh, so that's the, that's the inner city we live in. So when people ask me, how do we solve the inner city problem? Um, I have spent so many years denying the reality of the true answer, because I didn't want people to feel guilty of how they were living or the decisions they were making, or to feel that I thought I was this righteous guy who made this great decision. And, and I just say, oh, you know, mentoring, better schools, better, man, I'm telling you, you can mentor forever and better schools forever. That kid gets to $21 an hour and he becomes a suburbanite. He's leaving this community and then leaving this house for another investor to buy it up and turn it into a rental to somebody coming from Thailand, from Mogadishu, from Southeast Asia, from Detroit, from Gary, from some other distressed uh, concentrated poverty area in the state, in the country or in another country. And once they get here, if they do well, they, they then leave because that is the American dream. It is not just a, uh, that everybody has a good life, or that everybody can leave the people who don't have a good life behind and go have a good life with the other people who are having a good life. And that is success in America. It is killing the inner city. It is killing people. It is the, it, it is the root of all evil in America when it comes to social patterns. And it, it, I see it around me every day. I once had a meeting at a, at a, at a office about um, a half a mile from here when I was on the city council. He was showing us uh, his new um, equipment, uh, myself and the council president. And um, I said, how many people work here? Because I saw it was all white workers. And this is in the heart of the primarily black community. He said, uh, 42. I said, how many are from the north side where the place was? He said, one. I said, how can that be? He said, Don, let me tell you, we hire Northsiders. They get to $21 an hour, they become suburbanites. And so is there any mystery there as to why poverty is concentrated? Because you get to $21 an hour, you become a suburbanite. It's not that we're not making $21 an hour workers or that we're not making the middle class. We're cranking them out. But we, the teacher who is teaching that child in that class who is bright, showing a spark, is telling the student in English, 
you are bright enough. You're gonna, we're gonna work hard together and you're gonna get out of here. You're going to get out of this neighborhood. The teacher is telling them. The preacher is telling them. In fact, the preachers don't live here. The preachers of the, the, the congregations here don't live here. So they're telling, as they say, what you are speaks so loud, the world can't hear what you're saying, right? It said, the preacher is saying in his lifestyle, we want our children to work hard and do well so that they, like me, can get out of here. And he's preaching that here. And so the philosophy, the American philosophy, has become the American theology. And so even in churches, it's, it's the American values, even in schools, children are taught this. And I'm telling you, I live in a great house. This house was built by the postmaster 100 years ago. And that was a good living to make. And he built it, you know, at the, as, as, just put as much in it as he could. This is a great house. Anywhere else in the city, it would be twice its value. But it's half valued. Why? Not because anything is wrong with the house. We are, I am half a block from a small park with a lot of swings and stuff. I am uh, uh, half a, a mile, uh, three quarters of a mile from the largest park in the city of Minneapolis. And I am one mile from the river, the Mississippi River. <laughs> That's where I live. And this is a low income community. And it's, a, it's three minutes by car from downtown Minneapolis. How could it possibly be a low income community? It's got good houses, proximity to entertainment, proximity to downtown, proximity to, to the most reputed river in, this, in, the, in, in one of the most reputed rivers in the world, and, and next to the largest park in the city of Minneapolis, and it's a low income community where the housing prices are low. Yeah. That's how stupid we are as Americans. With all of that, we don't want it because poor people live here. And so what we're doing instead is pouring in giveaways. You know, right now, you can drive up Broadway and there's, uh, there's still a line of people um, getting free stuff at Sanctuary Covenant Church that is brought in by people from all over the suburbs to give to poor people or recovering from the late, latest looting and so on. Money is pouring in here. Yeah, from the federal government, from the county, from the city, from the donations, from the money. But people, stay away. Don't come near us. And, and I don't think that's how Jesus lived. In fact, I think he lived the exact opposite. I can't even say opposite emphatically enough. Yeah, I'd have to cough it out to make it as, 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 as radical as it really was. That he who had every power in his hands, put it aside, became of himself like a servant, subjected himself to, to the imperial authorities. Not even talking about his own little backwater country people. I'm talking the imperial authorities of Rome, subjected himself to his own leaders leaders a peasant guy with a craft instead of a profession and uh and walked around with you know stinky fisherman guy and subjected himself to the ridicule he, he wasn't like uh hey you know i'm so famous i'm telling you i'm so popular i just can't be around the regular people anymore because they all want a piece of me he never went there he stayed and absorbed the overcrowding and the grabbing at his clothes and the grabbing at him. And he stayed. And he stayed during the hating of him and the calling of him names because he was getting too much power among the masses. And he stayed. And he stayed until they grabbed him and threw him in jail. And he stayed. And he stayed till they killed him. And he stayed. And yet we have formulated a theology that is everything but that. I do not understand it. How did that happen? And it has killed American cities. And we think that we, are, we can move forward into the 
rest of the 21st century and have a great country with that kind of hypocrisy? It can't happen. Yeah, that, that, would be a, that would be a slam in the face of, uh, of everything historical and, and theological. It can't happen. And poor people won't even let it happen. Look what happened recently. You put your knee in a guy's neck, and why did that happen? Because that white cop coagulated with his, and, and congregated with his types, which means white people, in a suburban area of the state, and looked across at the far distance they had escaped from to the inner city and left a con concentration of, po of poor people, and began to, to form theologies and psychologies and philosophies around why they were there and those were there. And in the absence of the truth, which is we ran away and we hate them, they had to form things like they're inferior and they are scary and they, are, they will kill us. And so when, the, when they met as 90, 80% uh, of the police force is white and 20% is black, when they met every day on the streets of my neighborhood, it looked like a occupying force. And that 90%, they're mostly conservative people. Conservative, Republican, yes. Conservative, yes. White, yes. And they're policing black, mostly liberal, mostly democratic people, yes. What, how did that happen? Because they split away and began to develop philosophies, theological theologies, uh, uh, social theories, and, and politics in absence of a relationship. And so when they met at 38th and Chicago that day, that guy could kneel on this guy's neck, looking into the camera like, I know America. I'm doing America right here. Look at me do it. Yeah, I'm doing America. And in fact, I'm doing God's work. <laughs> I'm being righteous doing this. Right? And that's what we ended up with. And uh, I, I don't think there is another solution but for us to move into relationship with each other and be geographically placed adjacent to and in relationship to each other. And um, I just, I'm just so grateful that I stumbled on this as a teenager. And I don't know if you'd stumble, but walking back and forth between my middle-class high school, upper-class high school, through past all those fancy houses, and then watching the neighborhood change as I walk back home, and when the, where pe people don't have enough to eat and where kids are dressed in rags and go barefoot and then walking from that every morning back through as the neighborhood changes all the way back to my upper class school where I never could, my mom never had enough money to buy gym shoes half the time and I got detentions for that. I got so many detentions for not having gym shoes or not having the books. And they, nobody said, hey, you know, What's happening at home? No, it's like you got a detention. Yeah, and then I'd walk back, walk back to my poor neighborhood where kids didn't even have regular shoes, let alone gym shoes. <laughs> All right. And and so it feels like I stumbled into it, but I walked every day for 10 years. And for that I'm grateful because it pulled me out of the matrix and pulled me out of the matrix and said, Don, this is crazy. You don't want to be a part of this. This is, this, is, this is undignified. It's wrong. Why, why is there so much to go around and it's coagulated in the, or collecting and pooling in the hands of so few? And, uh, and so the question still stands for us as Americans who have solve so much of the world's problems. Can we face this one? We don't even have to solve it, just face it. It will solve. We don't have to, we have to be, be honest about it. I've always seen the, the problem, um, like I worked, I worked in the South Bronx for a summer with inner city boys, mentoring them. And the problems that I saw 
were with wealth, right? It, it's mm -hmm. not having enough money. But there's something that I, I've always noticed and something that I wanted to ask you about. How do we fix then that the problem where you, once you get, like you were saying, once you get the $22 an hour, you leave. How do we fix what seems to be so inherent in people that I want to have a, a good life, right? Like I want to have the American dream. I want to be comfortable. I want to have a nice house. I want to, I don't want to be uh, at threat of my things being taken from me, um, uh, higher crime, whatever it is, right? There's, it, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of motives that I see for people not wanting to stay in a, in an impoverished community, especially like where I, I work in the South Bronx. It's a, it's a really rough neighborhood. There's a lot of uh, drugs, crime, things like that that go on. So how do we, how do we fix something that seems so inherent in people? Uh, and then how does that solution fix the poverty, right? How does that, how does that work? Well, a couple of things. I think good theology would fix that. People go to church every Sunday. A lot of people go to church every Sunday. And they're listening to the guy up there. He got 20 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes to tell him whatever he wants. And nobody's talking about this, right? So it's kind of like, hey, guys, you're wasting God's time, <laughs> right? So, uh, so that's one. But that's a different audience, right? But the other thing is, just think about it. We are, we, we are so geared to facing challenges that um, you have comfortable people who have everything they need in a nice neighborhood. They, they could get maids, they could get somebody to mow the lawn, they could uh, get somebody to do all their sweaty work. And yet they go to the store and they buy expensive tights, they, you know, and put on. And then they go run for like a marathon, for something that I would not even do. I'm living in the, in the inner city of Minneapolis, which is everybody's saying it's a difficult thing. I wouldn't run a marathon for $1,000, for $10,000. I'm too lazy. I, I'm not into that rigor that much. So it's kind of like, it's just about which rigor are you going to choose, right? Are you going to run till your nipples bleed and your uh, you know, and, and your toenails turn black? Is that the kind of rigor you are going to end up with your life on your deathbed saying, you know, I lived a rigorous life. I, uh, I remember when my toenail turned black, and my nipples bled, and I peed on myself at the 25th mile. You know, is that how you want to go out? Because that, that's nothing. <laughs> or, are you gonna, or do you want to go out saying, hey, you know, I faced a dangerous community. I faced uh, uh, um, not making money off my wealth, off my home. I faced um, uh, the being disliked and misunderstood. But I mentored kids. I, I you know, I, I, I donated my time. I, 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 I picked up the crap around the the streets. I, you know, I, and and when when somebody came on me and you know, tried to threaten me. I said, hey, I love you, man, but, you know, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to run. <laughs> well, it's just a matter, it's a matter of which rigor are you going to choose. In fact, I can tell you, I know that I am absolutely sure that there are mothers in this country who have sent four boys off to, into the military and off to war in the Middle East who would not want those boys, one of them, to live in North Minneapolis. Think about that that your mom might be proud of you to go to the military, to go into a foreign country and go into the city fighting around corners and tripwires and bombs and maybe getting killed and proud of you might not want you to live in this community because it's not safe. So it's, it's, it's just a matter of which danger are you willing to face and how do you perceive that of what, 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 what do you perceive that you are doing? How noble, how much nobility is attached to it? So for instance, going to Afghanistan and being killed and coming home, being your body bag being brought home. I mean, there's gonna be guys in uniforms, they're gonna be marching at slow step 
and bringing your coffin in. They're gonna do a gun salute at your thing. They're gonna fold up the flag into a nice triangle and hand it to your mom in a, in, in a lateral posture with, a, with, a, with kind of military style. The country is gonna celebrate you. And you, so even though you, you know, your kid died and it's because you encouraged him to go to Vietnam or to Afghanistan or wherever and to fight a noble war, he gave himself for this country. And when you go to the NFL to a game, man, they bring out the planes and they bring out the military guys and they, with the one leg and they, he's in the wheelchair and they, everybody stands up and claps. And you know, it's like, yeah. But there's another reality, folks. There's another reality of a greater glory and a greater greatness that it does not involve going to kill anybody. It involves sacrificing your own convenience. That's the nobility right there. That's how you make your country great. I think it's, it's humility, right? I think our society lacks humility in a big way. Everybody wants to get rich, get rich quick. Like that's all, that's, that's what the American culture has become. It's become materialistic, right? And I see that being the problem, uh, a problem that is now fueling um, impoverished communities. Like for example, so two, three days ago, I went to Walmart and there was uh, three young boys in the parking lot and they had uh, windshield wipers and Windex. And they were going around the parking lot asking people coming in and going out uh, for money to spray the windshields. I think it was a dollar or whatever, um, because they they really wanted to get their mom a gift. And so I, I stopped and I talked to these young men for, for a few minutes. And they're from, from Houston up into Dallas. And uh, they're just like, yeah, we really want to get our mom a gift. I was like, well, great. Like, what do you want to get your mom? Like, you know, it's pandemic. I'm thinking, you know, maybe they need like a dishwasher or, you know, something like really important. They're out here. And they said, we want to get our mom like a Louis Vuitton purse. And I, <laughs> I was kind of amazed, like, but if you're if you're struggling to get money enough just to do this, like in my mind, my even thought was maybe why don't we go, uh, you know, invest in something or do something else. But uh, I, so like right there, I see that there's a problem right there that it's pursuing the material over yeah. over the greater good, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And I think and we taught that to we taught that to them. They didn't just come up with it. We taught it to them. Yeah, so going forward then, I, 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 really, I really think mentorship, I know you, talk, you spoke about it. Mentorship is, is incredibly important, I think, because it, mm-hmm. it, it instills character, or at least it, that's what it tries to do, right? Um, yeah. Not that there's character lacking, but it, it tries to give these, these values of like, there's a, bigger, there's a bigger nobility out there, right? It's not, don't just try and get rich, try and help people. So how do you think we how do you think we bring that into these communities like North Minneapolis where where people are running away once they get money right how do we instill these values so that the the culture changes like it's a cultural problem no longer a, yeah. a poverty problem Yeah well you're a young young dude so and and I'm hoping younger people are listening to your show because um, I'm going to be just crass about it right and it's crass, not in terms of indecent, but crass in terms of um, uh, um, in, in terms of offensive, in, in other ways. Because you know you haven't lived anywhere, bought your home yet, or anything like that, so uh, so you don't have to feel guilty. I'm not going to make you feel guilty. But I'm going to challenge every young person, every young man. If you want to mentor a young man in the inner city, live next to him. There's no, there's no better, you can't do anything better than that. That is as good as you could possibly do if, you do, if you're going to mentor, right? Men, if you're going to mentor a young man, live next to him. If you want to do it the right way. Do it the way it used to be when all the Lutherans were clustered around the parish and all the Polish Catholics were parish because the janitor's son and the doctor's son were there. There was not even a talk of mentoring. No, the word never came up. It just happened. And now you have to take time off from your job, meet me at 4.30 at so-and-so, and you know I got 30 minutes. Back then it was like, you know, I see you, you see me, I said, my son needs a job. Or my son, can you talk to my son? 
Yeah, where is he? There he is, over there. Tell him to come here. <laughs> it was like that. And, and so because we have separated ourselves, mentorship has become a thing. Let's stop making it a thing. Let's making it life. Let's make it how you live. And the best way to do that is to draw near to the kids who need the mentoring. Go live in an inner city community. At, at least, to, you know, give yourself a shot at it. If you're, especially if you're a young dude, you're not married yet, you don't have a scared wife, and you're, you, know, you still can run from you know, if you, a threat if it came to that. Yeah, go live in an inner city community. If somebody comes after you with a knife, you can run. Or if somebody's chasing you, you can run. Or you, or you might have some muscles. You might look a little imposing. Nobody's going to mess with you too much. Get some of your friends to do it. Mentor your friends to become mentors. And do it together so you're not that scared. Go live in a house of four dudes in the middle of the inner city and tell your church you're doing it and ask them to come behind you and mentor your church. <laughs> tell them to come behind you because when you see these kids who have a need, you want to be able to say, yeah, we know a doctor. You want to be a doctor? I'm going to let you meet a doctor. He goes to my church. You know, we got we to gotta do that. Just uh, uh, during this crisis, um, the looting and so on that's followed, I'm just going to give you a real practical example. And one of the things that has been a blessing for me is that I am a middle-class guy, upper middle-class, you could even say, my, with my wife, when you put our incomes together. <laughs> We're up there, <laughs> all right? So, so, and we know all the people in town who have money. We know a quarter of the top CEOs in the state, okay? Fortune 500. <laughs> so... So uh, we have relationships. We know the governor. We know the mayor. Can call any of them up on the phone, and they'll take the call. Who better to live on a tough one of the toughest blocks in the city than me? This is the place to be. If you're that connected, this is the place to be connected for. We are wasting it out in the high-priced community. Where, you know, what are you going to call them for? To come um, make your place richer even or better? If, you, if I live here, I'm bringing, I'm bringing the forces of government and business into my street. So just down a few blocks, a few houses down from us, an uh, executive assistant lives down there. She's not moving. This, this woman is sweet, man. She's not moving. All right. So the woman across the street from us lives in duplex. It's a poor, you know, poorly kept up duplex with a slumlord type of guy, but she's living there. She's got a one-year-old baby and a five-year-old. She's got a one-year-old baby in the car. They're driving down the alley, taking a shortcut. Some guys have blocked the alley with garbage cans. She gets out to move them, not knowing that there's anything related to that. The gunshots ring out, the barrage. She runs back to the car and screams, I've got a baby in the car and I'm a girl. She, and, and, and they stop shooting and um, wait, pause for a minute and shoot, start shooting again. She jumps in the car, pushes the baby's car seat over and takes off, knocks over the garbage cans and comes back home. She's got nine bullets in the back of her car. I don't know how the baby didn't get killed. A couple of the bullets went from the back windshield to the front windshield. Okay, I can't get into why this happened and everything, but she—it was a misidentification kind of a thing. Anyway, the woman down the street, she works. She's an executive assistant for a, a, a major Fortune 500 type guy. She, 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 um, she tells her boss about the incident because she's traumatized. She's talking about it. That's the thing. She's traumatized, and she's sharing the trauma with someone who wouldn't live here. That's the great thing about being living here and being connected. You're sharing the trauma, man. You're telling the stories. You're exposing the thing. It, this little girl holding up a, a thing to show jo George Floyd getting killed, she was tr sharing the trauma with the world. Otherwise, it would have been like, yeah, who, what? Oh, a guy got killed. Yeah, what, what happened? Oh, I bet he had a record. I bet he was resisting. The cops said he was resisting. No, man, she shared the truth with you and me, and it changed America. 
Think about that. Well, I am a living uh, 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 iPhone camera. I am a living uh, smartphone camera. I'm here taking the pictures. And so was she. And so she went and told her boss, and he said, I'd like to do something to help. So um, I, I told him, he, I, I had a conversation with him because I do talk with those people. And he called me. He wanted to have me on his, on his corporate um, um, Zoom call to talk to the staff. And so after the call, we talked, and we said, you know, my, my assistant told me this. I said, yeah, one lives directly across the street. He said, I want to do something. I said, I said you know, I think it's going to cost her about $1,000 out of her own pocket for um, deductibles and all of that. He said, well, I'll, uh, give me her address. I gave him the address. She come over two days ago. She said, hey, Don, I got, I got the, the letter in the mail. I got the money. And I said, well, you need to go talk to the woman down the street. She's the one who really made the thing. See, so between her and me, this woman got her deductible taken care of. Now, that's beyond mentoring. Mentors don't even find that stuff out, okay? This is something you find out when you live across the street from the woman. And so that's what I'm talking about. I don't even, I don't even like ment the word mentoring anymore. It's kind of like, don't run away from me and then mentor me, because now you're mentoring me into running away. You're giving, that's one of the lessons you're teaching me, that when you get to be like me, come live with me and leave this behind. We have, we have to turn the thing upside down, this American value upside down, and live among people who need us. Live where you're needed rather than where you can, uh, where you think you need to be. The, the whole thing is location, location, location. You pick the place with the best schools, the best value for dollar, the best uh, upward mobility, the best, the best friends for your children, the best. Everybody's running like, you know, like, uh, like, like we are these dependent things. Help me, I, I need more, I, help me. I, I have to have the best. I, can you give me more better? Is there anything better I can get? Because I, I need the best. And, and so we're going to die like that. We're, 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 instead of, hey, what can I do? Where can I help? Firefighters run towards the fire. It's like everybody's looking like, hey, man, get out of here. It's going to blow. And the firefighters are running with their hoses to the fire. And the doctors are like grabbing people who are hurt. They're not grabbing the healthy people. They're grabbing the hurt people. And they're saying, and everybody else is like, ooh, I can't look at that. Look at the blood. You know, the doctors are saying, oh, let's stop the flow, right? And so we are the healers. We are the healers. We put out the flames. We are the emergency force in the world. We bring peace. We are the peacemakers. We bring peace to the violence. We bring hope to the hopeless. It's not just a theological statement made for God to do, it's we bring it. We bring God into that, those situations. Blessed are the peacemakers. I see a growing problem in the country, especially now, that there's a, there's a narrative, um, at least as somebody who's white, right, that I've done something wrong as a white, as a white man even, right? I, I'm, uh, I'm a hateful, uh, vindictive person who wants to oppress this group of people. When in reality, I, I don't think I'm a racist. I don't think I, uh, I wanna hurt people or keep people down. Like I, I believe in the exact opposite of those things. Um, and these, right. this narrative is being pushed um, in the nation now. And I think it's really destructive. How do you think going forward in the country, we heal these, these wounds that are being caused in between the races in the country and bring people together like what we've been talking about, which, which is the solution to these problems. It's through friendship, right? It's, it's coming together and, uh, and getting to know people, right? Uh, having conversations like these. How do you, what do you see uh, the solution going forward, uh, especially with things like, like the, these, these narratives that I, I see are pretty destructive? Yeah, well, I, t I tell you why. I think, I, I think two things. One, one is we have to get used to taking the blame. 
that we don't deserve. And um, that's nothing new. I mean, there, we had teenagers sitting at lunch counters with milk and salt being poured on their heads and being told, nigger, get out, get out of here. They didn't earn that. They didn't do anything to deserve that. And they took it. In fact, taking it was their strategy. <laughs> so when did we get all so squeamish when there were kids doing that? Give me a break. You know, I, I, I went to, to a, a bunch of SWAT team, the Minneapolis SWAT team core, about 70 cops, 60 cops uh, um, who were on SWAT teams. And they invited me to come talk to them. And they asked the same question. They said, hey, we're going to these things. This was after Philando Castillo got killed. And everybody's calling us racist. We're helping people. And they're yelling racist epithets and stuff at us. And we're trying to help. And these are guys, you know, cops nowadays, they pump up, right? And they got the veins thing coming in the neck and the big muscles. And they're complaining like kids, like people are calling us names. I said, hey, let me tell you another story. And I told them the story of the kids who practiced in church basements to go into threatening situations to break down the collar line and were called all kinds of names. And they practiced to take it as an honor that we're going, this is our strategy is to take it. And I said, these are teenagers, guys. These are black teenagers in the South where you could be killed. They didn't have any guns. They didn't have any power. You guys have guns. You guys have power. Take it. That is your spiritual exercise. And there's no other option. You take your undeserved stuff. That's what Jesus did. It's like, he's the devil. He, you know, every now and then he would have a smart comeback. How can the devil cast out the devil? Well, you know, like, what are you guys saying about me? You know, I'm a good guy. I don't deserve this. I came from heaven, you know. <laughs> take it, man. Take it like a man. <laughs> White men, take it like a man. <laughs> That's what I have to say. It's your spiritual exercise to take undeserved accusations and to take it with honor and to, until people trust you and realize that, wow, he took it and he's such a great guy. No, I feel bad. Everything changes afterwards. They feel bad. Like, no, I realize I was to blame. And this is a, this is a spiritual opportunity actually being handed to white guys saying, Hey guys, you can, you can become great by, by loving anyway serving anyway, giving anyway. And, 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 it, and it, you could not have achieved that level of greatness if people did not misunderstand you. So it's actually, it's like, do you want a really big raise? Yeah, I want a really big raise. Well, I got a dirty job for you. I'll do it. How much am I gonna get? I'll do it. <laughs> There's no other way to achieve for our country to become great. Somebody's going to have to decide I'm going to go to that lunch counter. I'm going to be called a nigger. Or I'm going to be called a racist. Or I'm going to be called something. You're going to be called something. They say when you try to build a bridge, they come at you from both sides. Right? <laughs> when you try to be a bridge, they come at you from both sides. And, and that's, we have to begin to reinterpret those things. It's an honor. It's an opportunity to carry that burden. And to, to understand when you're doing it in real time, that's what you're doing. And that's why people who were persecuted, you know, if, you, if you're talking from a spiritual thing, Paul and Silas, they're in jail and they're singing. It's like, what the heck is wrong with those guys? It's like, you hit them down and they're singing. Yeah, you know why? They realized that that was their high point. That they were suffering for the great, for the greatest thing that they were honored to do this. It's a whole perception shift rather than what's the good life? What's the easy life? How can I get people to like me? How can I be popular? Why are people misunderstanding me? They're not fair. You know, it's like, it's a whole, you flip that whole thing. They said, no, it's just the soldiers understand that. The soldier's mom who sends her four sons into Afghanistan knows that. She's saying, yeah, take my sons, take my sons. They will suffer for this country. It's a greater good. Well, there's an even greater good to suffer for. It's not going to be bullets. 
is going to be in, going to be called names. It's going to, it's going to hit you in, in a more softer space. But if you can take it for the greater good, we can transform this country. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end. Yeah. Well, Don, it's been uh, my pleasure to speak with you, and uh, I think you're doing wonderful things. And uh, yeah, living living in the, in those places and, and doing the work you do, uh, I think you're making a, a big difference. Thank you. It's great to be on with you, and great to see a young man asking tough and good questions and um, trying to make the world a better place. That's my goal. <laughs> yeah. awesome. Take care. Hopefully, we can do this again sometime. Yeah, look forward to it. That was my guest, Don Samuels, who served both on the Minneapolis City Council and the school board, is CEO of Microgrants, giving small loans to start small businesses in impoverished areas, and who co-founded the Northside Achievement Zone, just to name a few. In this more controversial of episodes, Don tells me what he sees is causing concentration of poverty in the inner city, and how more people need to be courageous enough to live there. I hope you enjoyed this episode and got something out of it as I did, and I hope to see you back here for the next one.